What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we're going to be discussing Joe Walker's work on Blade Runner 2049. Now, if you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, stop this recording and go see it. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I cannot say enough good things about this film. Now, Joe is one of my favorite people to interview because he always goes into depth about some of the most unique little things about the films and he talks about his cutting process in such a passionate way that I'm always excited to interview him and it seems that every year we've been doing this so it's been every September-ish we end up sitting down and talking for about an hour and again I've been given the pleasure of sitting down with Joe and talking to him about his cutting process and I don't want to get into it too much here I want the recording to speak for itself so here's my interview with Joe Walker about Blade Runner 2049. How did you guys deal with the pressure of, you know, this sort of, as Danae referred in one of his interviews, in the Church of Film, Blade Runner is one of the holy scriptures. So, like, how did you guys deal with the pressure but maintain focus on on story and film? Well, it's either with extreme modesty or incredible arrogance. I don't know what the answer is, you know? (laughs) I mean, or, or, or maybe just, you know, being completely stupid or something and not realizing just in, in what kind of pressure we were. No, I think, you know, in truth, it, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. And, and the pressure is a difficult one because the scale of the filmmaking, the huge spend on big cast and, and you know, all of those sets, they were built for real. You know, Origo Studios in Hungary, had many sets, standing sets, and they were built. The entire Anna's Lab, for example, none of that is set extension at all. It's completely, you know, with a tiny little VFX fixes for something, one, you know, one little thing here or there. When you looked out of Kay's window in his apartment, you saw the skyline, and with a few little enhancements that extended the skyline sometimes further into the background or added moving vehicles. But the light effects for the vehicles were on set. You know, it was a hugely ambitious and, let's be honest, expensive endeavor. But at the heart of it, you know that if you're going to be respectful to the original film, you're being respectful to something that's a masterpiece, but was actually a commercial flop. The pressure was twofold in a way to make something that, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it's trying trying to be, you know, true to the original, but innovative and new and fresh and reach a new audience and... And hopefully, you know, get their investment back. You know, it's kind of that. I suppose, in a nutshell, is pressure. But I don't know. I always felt very confident because Denny was at the helm. That's the truth. I always felt he was going to do something really fresh and original with all this. And the pressure is always high. It doesn't really matter actually whether the budget's big or not. That's kind of unfair for me to say. The pressure is always the same. How how can I do this justice and tell the story the best way I can? And just with this one, with many, many moving parts, you know. Coming out of the theater, there's a couple people who aren't huge into sci-fi or aren't huge into, you know, film noir or what have you. And I, I was just telling them, go see it because it's just visually stunning, but also like, like the atmosphere, the feeling, everything about it is unlike anything I could think of when I came out. 
And like the closest mm. thing I could say to people was like, if you've seen Tarkovsky's Mirror, like that's the closest I could think of in terms of a feeling because it's. I remember watching that film and just being like, oh, it's it's like I'm watching a piece of art <laughs> at a theater, you know, like at in an art gallery. It was so well structured and 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 visually. Uh, something I've never seen. Well, I think we always talked about maybe this has an element, you know, to do with the pacing and the kind of cutting of the film, which is that there was, we always talked about it as being, you know, an electric dream, a dream of some kind, maybe, you know, hallucination, you know, that sort of cinematic experience, you know, I mean, me, the thing I think the most impressive about the film is it's like a real cinematic event that after a while, I think the best reviews I've had from friends who were kind of, hotly awaiting it they said that after about half an hour they when they realized that the family jewels are not being sold and they just buckled up you know for a, a cinematic experience and and part of that was i mean there many little signs in the film that we're you know in a working dream you know it starts with an opening of an eye and you know halfway through the film i always thought there was the film very much in my mind was always in two halves and the halfway point was always Mariette waking up after the threesome. <laughs> so, and that, again, it starts with a woman's eye opening and somebody awaking. And I don't know, they always felt there was a sort of complex poetry to all that. And a lot of it was kind of keeping a certain tension, always feeling the kind of thread pulling at you and pulling you along in the story. So no, hopefully never feeling like things are dragging or slow, but just always sort of tense. Uh, the lighting effects, you know, are kind of quite measurely in their way. For example, see just one shot of Love walking down a corridor before she meets, we meet uh, Wallace for the first time. There's this incredible uh, caustic effect on the wall with this um, sunlight, artificial sunlight moving across the space. And, you know, it, it was deliberately shot with that kind of slightly suppressed, slightly um, hallucinatory quality and I always wanted to kind of preserve that and I felt it was true to the original film in fact the pacing of the original film and also true to the sort of spirit of the endeavor that it wasn't going to be a wham bam crash cut kind of blockbuster you know rattle through the story and you know really wanted to give time for people to kind of soak it up one of the things that I found really interesting was I have a friend who hated the first Blade Runner and loves this one. <laughs> and like, like he, the reason he went is because we dragged him. Yeah. <laughs> like he was like, no, I don't. And now he's like, oh, oh my God, oh, it's I love it. I can't convert. But you know, the, um, there are some elements. We watched the first film so many times. I watched it with my team a number of times before we started. And we always used to call it our baseline test. That was our little in joke. You know, we wanted to screen it. And there was a lot that we picked up and learned from those screenings of just the bombast sometimes of the music and the kind of this is this definitely in soundtrack terms elements like the, the kind of is it sound effects or is it music kind of stuff that's going on when just you're in somebody's interior to have these kind of musical chimes of some kind and you couldn't really tell who's responsible for it in the whole mix of things it's just all bedded in as part of the world and we were dissecting it and pulling it apart and appreciating it many many times you mentioned i guess just a little bit ago about trying to make it like a dream. And when I was reading some of the interviews with uh, Danae, he talked about it being hypnotic immersion. And he said he had to work closely with you to get that feeling. So how did you and Danae work together to create this sort of hypnotic dreamlike immersion? 
I think it's it's a balancing act between tension and time, isn't it? And it always is, but it was particularly so in this one. You know, there was just finding the rhythm of it was a process. And, you know, sometimes you... Um, you can stretch the rubber band really tight. You know, you know that Deckard is going to appear. You know that Deckard is going to be in this film and sort of sensing him in that uh, Las Vegas walk, you know, which is always one of my favorite scenes. I mean, it's one of the most fabulous sets with all those kind of erotic sculptures. They've kind of, they've built them. And this sort of slow tread as he he works his way through. And, you know, it's the easiest stuff for people under pressure to, to suggest cutting. But I just, the possibility of that kind of inexorable tread towards something we know uh, we have a very strong hint of what he's going towards, and then you can hint at Deckard's presence, you know, the tripwire, uh, the bottles on the side of the bar, you know, and this piano sort of two fingers playing the Brahms lullaby, you know, luring him in. It just felt like just really what we always wanted to preserve the quality of that which is a quality that is achieved at that pace it's not achieved if you you know believe me i tried every type of pace <laughs> on everything and and you know there was there's a certain level where when you kind of accelerate the action and accelerate the um the pace of performance and stuff it gets to the point where actually you lose some intensity I mean, one of the biggest treats for me, I did, wasn't involved. I saw the 240 version, 2D version was the main version that I worked on for a year. And then right at the end, I went to see Roger's IMAX version. And so you get a little bit more screen. But the main thing is that it struck me how you got this phenomenal vertigo from these big aerial shots. But you also, in some way, in the dialogue scenes between Kay and Joy and love and Joshi, you know, uh, Robin Wright's character, they, the intensity, you sort of narrow in on the eyes more. And I realized that that's just a very strong thread in the cutting is following the eyes and trying to kind of capture this dance between the characters and allowing those little beats where you see something that may not be, you know, just after somebody said something or in a moment of reaction or something. These were, uh, I don't know, that's all the stuff I hold, I hold very dear anyway. But on this film, there seems to be a great opportunity to kind of make it sing and dance. It's funny that you would say that, like holding that beat after something happens, because <laughs> in the first screening I went to, you know where Robin, and this is a spoiler alert, for when people are listening but when robin wright's character gets stabbed yeah um you do a cut outside so we're seeing it from outside looking in and it snows falling and the way the sound was done is there's sort of like a lot of tension and noise inside uh, or scuffling and then as soon as we cut outside it's that sort of dead quiet sound when you see snow fall and a guy, everyone was sort of tense in the theater at that moment, and some guy way in the back went, oh my god! <laughs> and he just, he was so built up in the tension that he just screamed out loud. And then he was like, oh my god, sorry! <laughs> and he went back to try to watch. And the whole theater was like, just dead quiet for the next second or two. But, I always love that. But he was so caught up. I always up. love that feeling that people, you know, want to shoot at the screen when there's a baddie. You know, it's, I always love that. I remember in Back in Leicester Square when Total Recall came out, I remember being like uh, on opening night crowd of 
Total Recall. And there's just a moment in the film where a bead of sweat is a big clue that things aren't all they seem. It's just you see this little bead of sweat on somebody's brow and you kind of realise that they're fake or it's not real or it's a lie. And I just remember it was a really quiet moment in the cinema and this girl at the back, I can't remember the word she said, it was something like sweat or something <laughs> like that, you know, or, or, oh my God, or something like that. And it was that thing of, she was articulating something that 2,000 people were thinking at exactly that same microsecond. It was just that, that's what, I love going to the cinema and having that communal experience. And that's a fantastic, that's a great thing to hear. And it's, I just love the feeling of watching snow falling mm. in all the scenes. So it was perfect because it had that nice, quiet, sound of um it's a very dynamic soundtrack that's the thing we were aiming for and right up to the end we were always trying to kind of enhance that the idea being you know you can go from those hard slashes of of love's blade as she stabs into this kind of just sound where actually all you're hearing is the sound of snow falling on the surface nothing really nothing else i don't think there was any other sound hugely dynamic and you know the whole point being we have a massive seawall sequence but you can also have the sound of the wings on a bee fluttering on the guy's hand and he's never seen a bee before and it's there's no other sound it's a really remarkable soundtrack in that regard. The most dynamic soundtrack I think I've ever worked on. I love that. I think it's the, I don't know, like I don't know your travel history, but I've gone to very remote places in Canada where, you know, you'll have a couple feet of snow and you'll exit and there's this sort of emptiness in the sound, but there's sound mm. there. It's kind of a weird feeling when you're in, alone in the middle of nowhere and that's what it felt like in a lot of the snow scenes mm. where like when we cut outside for robin wright it was like this weird like it's there's sound there but it feels as if there's no sound mm. there. it's one of my favorite things whenever i've experienced it in life and it was just amazing to see that it was captured in a film well i mean the film gave me loads of opportunity to have these sharp rhythms i mean that's that's a very good example of them there's you know, you, you, I, 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 there's all manner of transitions and kind of juxtapositions in the film. Uh, you know, some of them are very elegant and poetic. You know, I mean, like, for example, we had this idea in the cutting room of going from the embers spiraling into the sky in a sequence where Kay has been rescued by a kind of the gang of replicants and they're out in the desert and then you cut to the kind of little embers spitting up into the into the dark sky and then they slowly turn and evolve into the city lights as you re-enter Los Angeles so there's a variety of you know uh, hopefully it's not just one thing over and over but it, there's plenty of opportunity for sort of very sharp rhythms the death of Coco for example is a super rhythmic piece you know, where there's a crunch on the back of his neck and a drop to the floor and then the, the sound of him choking and at the same time the sound of her, you know, she looks almost like Audrey Hepburn in a Beverly Hills supermarket, you know, <laughs> taking a few items and putting them in her, her tray. You know, it, it was that sort of sinister rhythm to find all the time. And um, I think that's largely, you know, I hope that's the, I hope that's well that's what we're striving for is is this um tension broken occasionally by sort of jolts and not in a kind of schlocky way but just in a sort of very muscular way now 
<laughs> and this is sort of a, a selfish question for me, but the film is sort of, it is so packed with references to things and sort of homages to things from like the brutalist architecture to, you know, there's San Diego is basically Ed Bertinsky's photos to, <laughs> uh, you know, K changing his name to Joe, like in the trial. Mm. So was there anything you as an editor got to sort of pay homage to through your editing or was it something you, you weren't able to do in the, in the editing process? God, my memory's so bad. I'm sure there's some things in there. <laughs> it's like we all, we all put little sort of ingredients in that, you know, hidden, little hidden things. I'm just, I'd have to rack my brain, Gordon, a little bit harder. <laughs> you know, I'll have to sit and watch the film and turn you back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did notice the moviola in the Oh, library. that's a big one. I mean, that's interesting. That that originally, you know, this came from, there was an amazing company who did the on-screen graphics on set, and they, uh, they, they did a phenomenal job. But with the Dina base, you know, the challenge of this thing is that we're in a post-digital world, so everything has kind of gone back to, you know, uh, strips of celluloid or, you know, something fundamentally mechanical. You know, it's explained in the story is there's been a blackout and they've lost their digits. And on set, I remember that Denny had briefed Ryan that turning the mach- this machine on should be like... Um, a Canadian snowmobile. <laughs> I forgot what they're called. There's a name, isn't there, that they've got. Oh, Bombardier snow- oh, it's snowmobile. Exactly. So the things you go, you know, grind up to gear and, you know, have loads of little extra sort of weird cranks as it sort of, uh, you know, flutters into life. And and so we had, in fact, we had the sound effects, you know, we had some amazing temp work by this wonderful guy I worked with called Theo Green. And even when we were assembling it, it was part of the design. And even while we were shooting, we had the, you know, Denny had an idea that the computer should have a, a voice. And a friend of mine, in fact, Bernie Leinfelter, who's, a, you know, um, Japanese-American, she recorded some voice for us and sent it over, you know, to us in Hungary. So we started putting in this slightly depressed <laughs> computer voice. And it just the scene started to take shape, you know, that I mean, I suppose, you know, born of a fear that it is a scene of somebody in front of a screen, after all, and those are often the most boring things in a film. You know, people on a mobile phone or, you know, looking at uh, looking at the internet are always the scenes that you're, you know, the first to go. So we put a lot of effort into making this thing as exciting as we could. And then way down the line, I had a fantastic temp BFX team who worked very close to us in editorial. Um, Javier, who's been my long-time sort of VFX partner and Russell. And the brief, uh, in fact, I scribbled something on a piece of paper for them because I talked to Denny and said, look, I've got some, I've got a little idea about how this thing could, you know, be on bobbins and be a little bit like um, the old competitors that I used back in the 80s. And uh, there were all these weird mechanical editing instruments that I used to dig out of the um, warehouse when I was at the BBC. And one of the, like, for example, a twin-headed pick-sync, <laughs> something that allows you to cut with two video tracks and two audio tracks. And then the standard competitor was one which had one video track and three audio tracks that were locked together. And a, and a fourth track that you could spin separate so you could run down a roll of sound and just run it down to the point where you've got a sound effect, find it, make a little mark on a china graph and then 
they cut it into your track. So you had one floating track audio head always. And that was the idea behind it. And I remember sending Russell a sketch from Chicago, in fact. We were there for a test screening, and I sent him a couple of sketches on a piece of paper. And he went about with on that side of the team of developing some idea of these interlocking celluloids and that there would be a kind of repetitive pattern and it would have a little bit of jitter and that there would be a ground grass feel, a bit like the little moviola screens used to be. And that's a definite homage to editing equipment. So I'm glad you pointed me in that direction. That's an absolute golden one. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in any film in the last 10 years is the scene with Frances McDormand getting caught up in her editing gear in Hale's there isn't an editor alive scene that scene who wouldn't just howl with laughter it's a very very funny uh, homage well, I loved how much in Hail Caesar how much he was smoking <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the first few you know years in the cutting room and I was like wow everyone really smokes in oh, here Gordon, those were the days <laughs> <laughs> now I've, I've read a few places where you talk about the Vegas hologram yeah. show uh, and how intense that was to cut but there's another scene that when I left the theater, everyone sort of wants to know how that would be approached, where the VFX end and where the editing would be involved. And that's the sex scene between Joy, the prostitute, yeah. and Kay, where Joy takes over the body. And it's sort of like a weird interlocked, I guess you could say, movement. So like, how did you approach cutting that scene with something that could be so technical and make it well, actually, so you know, sensible. they shot it really uh, in a totally uncompromising way. <laughs> they shot it without green screen, so there was no separation. They rehearsed very carefully with their actors, and they broke the scene down very carefully into a, a series of movements and uh, you know the choreography is well worked out and then you know they replicated each other's movements but they literally would just have the camera and point it against the same light and against the same backdrop of his apartment in the apartment and actually you know it gave us a little headache because you sometimes you could merge the two girls but you couldn't the two ladies and you couldn't merge ryan because he had two shoulders in shot so it was, it was a little fiddly, but the things you get, I can remember even on set, Denny showed me an image of the two women combined, and there was this, uh, it was just a grab uh, where they'd lined up two things just to check they're in the right place. And you had this slightly kind of sinister spider thing where there was one eye was aligned, but the other two eyes aren't because they, they have quite different facial shapes. In terms of editing, you know, I cut that with a series of 50-50 superimpositions. So I'd have two video tracks running and I'd superimpose one and I would like block off little bits of the screen to make it better. And sometimes I'd have to speed one actor up a little bit. There's a little bit of motion effects sometimes just to get them in the same place. Nobody wanted it to be exact because there was always, you know, Denny absolutely wanted the accident of you know, a character moves forward, but an inch too far, and you see more of them than the person that's clinging onto them. So it's he wanted to feel that kind of buzzing between the two. They're very effective, but it was old school. It was shot old school. I mean, if you talk about Tarkovsky, if, if that is how Tarkovsky would have shot it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So as soon as I had a kind of draft that worked, the temp team sort of did a huge amount of work of rotating, you know, one actor into place just to sort of see if we could align them a little bit better. And a long time in the cup, I had this thing, one eye, you know, the camera right eye was absolutely zeroed in and, and on target. And the other one was two eyes. So you ended up with this... It felt like it's a frightening moment. It's a sort of loss of virginity scene. So there's kind of, you want to feel the warmth and the the sap rising, but you also, there's something Mm. mysterious and like a kind of strange age-old inculcation going on. I think that that was there in the first cut. You know, you actually had it in the first cut. It wasn't something that you had to wait seven months to see from the VFX team. I mean, this is to say that there was then also a huge amount of work by the VFX team to just finesse this to such a degree so that you could align the shoulders sometimes or you could play with how much transparency there is. And, and I was always intrigued by there's a little accident which I thought was fantastic, which is that when the two women go behind him and he can no longer see Joy, Joy was actually, the match was never brilliant on set they kind of knew that it wasn't right but i couldn't fix it in the edit i couldn't you know speed joy up to match marriott and they ended up in slightly different phases so i you know that was the one kind of i'm gonna need some help from vfx big time on this one and they ended up i think partly using a cgi joy and it's just it's brilliant that it it's at that moment because I think you can even feel it when you see it, which is that when he's not looking at her, she conserves energy and she becomes more a dummy. So, you know, it was like embracing the accident of all that was, uh, I think, the kind of intention. It was sort of the built-in, you know, in musical terms, we used to talk about aleatoric music, that you'd sort of convey a gesture, but you wouldn't spell out the exact how to play it. You'd give people the notes, but you wouldn't tell them in what rhythm to play it. And it was... I always see that as a kind of aleatoric sequence, so yeah, posh word <laughs> for the day. Now, speaking of music, I, I, you know, I've, I've read a few things that Hans Zimmer talked about and working with this with Benjamin, and they they said that they had a four-second rule for your cuts. What what do they mean by oh, that? Oh, God, yeah, I remember. They, they say that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what is I that think, exactly? Well, look, you know, the... Well, look, you know, part of the way that we work, you know, me and Denny have worked, and in fact, this is also something I've done with Steve McQueen, is that you try to resist pinning music on the cut too early. And it means that you find a very precise rhythm for the cut and you're very, you know, it's a rhythm is a really, really big part of it. And you're trying to find the inner rhythm of the performance and there's a way that things are cut. They have their own kind of pacing that you try and find over a period of time in the director's cut. And... If you start too early being influenced by a piece of music in the wrong place, then it doesn't help you really appreciate where the pace is coming from. Is it coming from the story and the characters or is it coming from John Williams, you know, as a temp track or something? So trying to kind of keep all that stuff out. And for the longest part, you know, initially with your hand in your hands, we were working with kind of quite um, ambient tracks you know that weren't overly driving and so there wasn't anything to kind of interfere with that kind of editing rhythm so you end up by the time that we got to hands and played them the film there's it's got a rhythm and that they're looking at something that's kind of quite well advanced it's waiting for music to do the things that the edit can't do you know to put blood in the veins if you like you know and to 
to especially with a performance like this one with Ryan, you know, I often thought it, you know he's very buttoned down, he's very controlled. Apart from one, you know, fan, a couple of fantastic moments in the middle of the film where he finds out that all is not as it seems, and he, you know his memory is revealed to him as potentially real when he goes down his lab. There's a kind of an explosion of rage, but for, apart, you know, for the most part, it's a very measured performance and a largely non-verbal one. So you're looking for music to sort of bring out the soul, you know, inside. And we always thought that if we could kind of crack that soul music or horse theme, we used to call it, that that would actually give us the backbone of the film. So Hans and Ben always said, we'd often put the music they were writing against the film and it always felt like on the moment and somehow they worked out that um, against my cuts if you just left it four seconds and then you emphasized the point, then it was like a reinforcement of what had just been felt. So you kind of, you, the audience twig something and then you reinforce it or you sort of, it's confluent that way. It's not Mickey Mousing any emotion in any way. It's always like behind and often we were putting the keys back, always pushing the keys back, very rarely shuffling them up. <laughs> so it's, I don't know, it, it just seemed to kind of find a, it's just a way of marrying two types of rhythm. Now, I have uh, two more questions. Uh, one is kind of a weird one, but there's now sort of this weird fan theory online that at the end, when Kay passes away on the stairs, when we go inside and see Harrison Ford's daughter, she's manipulating snow. And there's now a, a fan theory that it was all a dream and that she was creating this dream to bring... Harrison Ford in and guide him in. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I uh, look. I mean, I don't subscribe to that particular view. Yeah. And there are some crazy theories out there. There was one I read the other day where they were convinced that the replicants had eat Deckard's dog, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. I mean, I wish you know. It's funny. We took a shot out with the dog sitting warm and cozy by the fire, and it was just we dropped that out of the cut. So if I'd left that in, there wouldn't have been that fan theory. So I guess we're into kind of like maybe we can do several other you know cuts of the film what i do subscribe to is the idea that is kind of confluent with that which is that in some unconscious way anna has planted a memory in all to be discovered yeah and i always felt there's a kind of unconscious desire for her you know the story that she may herself not even know it's never even explicit that she knows who she is I mean, she tells a story about her parents, uh, you know, having passes in pocket to Offworld. And they put, you know, they had a choice between Offworld or me and they chose me. It's a line like that. And you can't, you know, it fits together with the, the orphanage story. But there's, you know, she remembers the orphanage and she talks about how, you know, I was used to crowds. And I always think that's kind of like a bitter, a slightly bitter taste to that kind of comment she makes that, on reflection, you can go back and say, yeah, she was horribly bullied by, you know, a load of bald-headed kids in, a, in an orphanage. And um, I don't know, I always felt there was kind of, she had, she was the kind of instigator of the story, you know, and I think the film opens. I mean, I think I've, you'd have to ask Denny and the writers and everybody else, but my personal theory is the eye at the beginning of the film is Anna's eye. So in a, in a way, it's... Um, 
<laughs> I don't agree with that particular theory you quoted, but it's confluent with another of mine. Now, my last question, and I've asked you this before, so I'm going to change it up a bit, but I usually ask, you know, what your favorite guilty pleasure film is. But I guess because we've we've talked before, what is the sci-fi film, other than the ones you've worked on, that you go to for enjoyment? Or what's your favorite sci-fi film? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Gordon, you sprung me. I, I think I really inadequately answered the last time. It's, I've, I've seen so many films. It's like, it's like uh, what was your favorite meal in a restaurant? <laughs> you know, it's like such a hard one. I mean, you know, the thing is, I, I think I grew up just at a rather golden time for sci-fi. I mean, I was just, you know, I'm 54. So it meant that, you know, I was a teenager when Star Wars came out. But there were also those other interesting films like... Um, Oh, you know, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, it was a, a John Carpenter film set in outer space. It was it was phenomenal. Uh, forgive me, I've forgotten. I'm, I'm going to answer this one very badly. Um, I've tried to see Solaris by Tarkovsky three times, and I have never made it all the way through that film. Just <laughs> something to me, and I love what I love the film, but I've never got past 45 minutes. It's just insane. I've been to the cinema three times, and each time it just does something to my brainwaves and I shut down. <laughs> so I'd love to say that that's my favorite sci-fi film, but unfortunately I've seen it all the way through. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for, for letting me interview again. Yeah, great, um, great to talk to you, Colin. Always, always a pleasure. Really, always a pleasure. So that was my interview with Joe Walker. Now, after we talked, he emailed me some of his sci-fi pleasures, the films he likes to watch that are sci-fi. And so I'm going to read out his list that he sent me. From when he was a kid, he likes Quatermass, The Tomorrow People, and a tremendously sparse-sounding Space 1999. And for movies, he really liked Gattaca, They Live, Brazil, and WALL-E, and of course, E.T. Again, thank you so much to Joe for allowing me to interview him. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.